Hello, everyone. This is Jim coming to you from quarantine during the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, decided to do a brief little episode today to talk about a concept I've been thinking about for a while. I've been trying to make it more concrete today, and I want to talk it through. So this one is going to be about religion, and in particular, Christianity. And I, for those of you who know me personally, and I'm assuming for the time being that would be anyone who might be listening to this, you might be familiar with what I've written on my blog, which tends to take a rather dim view of Christianity. I've, I've sort of taken a position within or around, at least close to, the position of the militant atheists. I certainly have, have read the work of uh, Christopher Hitchens, uh, Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins. And I think that, that their overall point is sound. I think from a rationalist perspective uh, that you pretty much have to reject organized religion, Judaism and Christianity. Those can't be literal truths. And I think that there are elements of the text that are extremely problematic. They're morally reprehensible. But I, but I don't buy in wholesale to their... Uh, at the very least, I would say at best, I'm, I'm undecided. I certainly don't take what they say wholesale. There's still some unanswered questions for me some ambiguities. Um, I've, heard, I've heard some of these amb ambiguities and questions articulated by other people who are now discussing them very publicly. And so I want to talk through some of those. Uh, I think the argument goes something, something like this. It, it, so we can look at Western civilization and in particular the United States. And the United States, as it stands right now, is an extremely, in the long course of human history, it feels like a very improbable event for this to have come about. It took a very long time for human beings to establish a society in which religion was tolerated, but it was not part of the uh, political structure. These two things were separate from each other. It took us a very long time to get there. And in terms of our overall morality, in terms of our perspectives, beliefs, practices that have led this to being a stable system, that has certainly been informed by Christian values. Now, I, I sometimes hear the argument that the founders were religious, they themselves were devout Christians, and therefore it would make sense for us to be devout Christians as well. This argument doesn't make sense to me. First of all, I don't think this is strictly true. Uh, yes, the founders were worshippers. George Washington was quite devout. He felt that in fighting 
for America during the Revolutionary War. He was doing the Lord's work. And some of them were almost certainly very devout followers of, of Jesus in particular. Um, but some of them were not. It seems to me that many of them were deists. Uh, Thomas Jefferson himself seemed to like the moral precepts of Jesus, but rejected the supernatural stories, the miracles, which he omitted from his uh, compiled Jefferson Bible, which is a curated book of Bible verses that omits all of the otherworldly stuff. It essentially is a, a reduction of what Jesus taught to just his moral philosophy. So many of them were, I think, at best, deists. I'm not sure they would wholesale buy the Trinity transubstantiation that we should adopt any particular practice. And in any case, they went to such great lengths to separate these two things, to say politics and religion are separate clubs that do not interfere with each other in this country. That for people to say anyone in politics should be governed by Christianity, they should look to re that religion for any kind of guidance, is I think missing the point of what the founders were, were trying to accomplish and what they're trying to send to us through history, through the founding documents. However, it may be that as improbable as the United States is, even if Christianity is not an input from the mindset of the founders, perhaps the fact that it grew out of antecedent philosophy and ideology that preceded it, which was most certainly influenced by a Christian context. Maybe if you replay history and you don't have Christianity as if it's not part of the equation anywhere, then you don't end up with the United States. So I think this is the concern. I've heard Jordan Peterson talk about this. This seems to be his argument, that there is something in the stories that has, it's codified in a way that cannot be articulated, that has led to the world we now inhabit, its established values. And it's something slightly more complicated than you have the Ten Commandments and everybody just obeys those rules in a draconian fashion and then you have law and order. I think his point is much more subtle than that. And so I, I want to start with like a, a simple example to kind of talk through some cases, like basically break down what the equation could look like um, and what it is we might be missing. This is imprecise. This is uh, provisional. But my thinking is that you have, you have three elements uh, here. One would be the agent, uh, the, the causative factor. The second one would be the action or the event. 
something is done or something takes place. And the third thing would be the outcome. What happens based on the action or event? What, what follows that? Okay, so there's an example I will give you from the Old Testament. And all credit for this goes to um, an evolutionary biologist who is popular on the podcast circuit. He has his own podcast. Uh, his name is Brett Weinstein. And he takes the perspective that religion itself is a Darwinian adaptation, as he puts it, and so may have a benefit to both the individuals and the groups that choose to adopt it and practice it for themselves. It has an evolutionary advantage, and that's why it has persisted. I hope I didn't butcher that um, drastically simplified, um, I hope that, that very simplified expl explanation did it justice. Um, so it's the way I would summarize the point I have heard him make, and again, this comes from me, not him, and I hope this isn't butchering it, but you have the example of filth in the Old Testament. Uh, the, the deity Yahweh does not want filth in the camp among the Israelites. So, so the, the, the action here is you can do one of two things. It's, it's, uh, you, you can defecate in the camp or you can defecate outside the camp. And in this case, there's just a simple mapping between this action, these two actions and two possible outcomes. So defecating in the camp, the higher probability that uh, it sickens the Israelites or kills the Israelites, a higher probability of them getting sick and dying. And then the other action, uh, defecating outside the camp, the outcome there is less chance of disease stricken the Israelites and less chance of death. Now there's the, the question here is what is the agent doing this? The, the, the way the ancient Israelites understood it at the time that this was written, they thought it was the deity. They thought it was Yahweh. Now we now know in light of current scientific understanding that it was microbes. We now understand how germs are present in fecal matter. This is why we have evolved to be repulsed by our own feces, why they smell terrible, but why we, if they come anywhere near us, we are repulsed. They are, they are not something you want to have contact with. Now, this is three, 4,000 years before we had a scientific understanding of why that was. And so while it's imperfect, because we don't understand the real agent at work, there was a clear case of cause and effect that was readily apparent to the Israelites. And so it is scientific to me in so much as they were looking for cause and effect because they did have a sense 
that there was cause and effect. They are kind of looking at the natural world and saying, if this is the input, this is the output that you get. They just didn't understand why. They didn't understand what was inside the black box. And so there's, you, you can think of this in another way. Um, there's probably other examples that can be pulled in. There are things that the Bible is right about in that if you have a certain input, you will get a certain output. They, they map to each other, but it, it's attributable to, it's attributed to God, but we now attribute it to some other thing. So I've been reading a lot of Carl Jung recently, and Jung was very big into astrology. Now, I'm, I am not sold on astrology because it is not a scientifically validated, as far as I know, it's not a scientifically validated means of divination. There are some correlations there, but, but I don't think it's something, I don't think you would find a scientist turning to it to explain uh, events or, or, or why a human being behaves the way they do. But it could be, it could be that there is something scientific about it in that there is a clear cause and effect between the two things, but we, we were using the wrong agent. So in the case of astrology, uh, the agent that we currently use is the position of the planets at the time someone's born. So the position of the planets is the, is the causal factor. The action or the event is the birth date and time. So if you know that, that corresponds to uh, the planets and their positions. And the outcome there would be what kind of human being emerges from the womb when they are born at that time. So personality array, the array of personality traits of the individual. Now, it, it could be that these two things are correlated. So you have the action or event would be, I suppose it would be a combination of the birth date and time. And there's not just two inputs. It's not just inside the camp or outside the camp, but it's all possible combinations of positions of planets at the time somebody could be born. And that is a very, very long list of possibilities uh, much more than two, but they, those could all be mapped to dates and times. So that's your possible actions. And then those map, not one-to-one, -one, but perhaps uh, be far less, um, the, the array of personality traits. So two people who have the same astrological chart at the time they're born would end up having roughly the same personality, at least the same predisposition. And you could say that maybe they're not identical in personality because of environmental um, factors. So somehow 
birth date and time and the position of the planets is correlated in some consistent enough way so as to a pattern emerges, it's correlated with the behavioral phenotype of the individual, say, over the course of the lifetime of that individual. There are people who believe this has predictive power. So getting back to what I started with, I'm curious if there isn't, if there isn't a scientific principle to this, we're just getting the agent wrong. Maybe we're using the planets and their positions at the time of birth as a kind of proxy for something else. But there is an agent involved that science just hasn't developed an understanding for. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that that is true. But I'm saying if you, if you look at the, the way the deity feels about filth in the camp, if you take that rough equation, if you can put all the factors in, if you believe there's something to astrology, it could be that we're just missing the germ theory of disease. We just don't have that piece of the puzzle yet. And so I, I, I think the argument um, in terms of human behavior, and you, you have a few different levels you could, you could talk about this at. So there's the level of the individual. So uh, an individual person. And the person can, they can choose to be religious or not. Let's say they can choose to abide by what's in scripture or they can avoid doing that. Um, so those are the two possible actions. And again, it, let's say those map generally to two general outcomes, you know, two, two different probability distributions, let's say. Somebody who chooses to adopt scripture in their lives, the probability is much higher that good things happen to them, and it's much lower that bad things happen to them. And on the other side, if somebody doesn't abide by it, it seems that the probability, the outcome here, would be that more bad things would happen to them and fewer good things would happen to them. Essentially, the balance is staggered in the other direction. Now, there could be something to that. Uh, but again, I'm wondering if, if that's your observation, if you observe this clear cause and effect, and I think, I think this would be a difficult one to quantify. But qualitatively, let's say you get that sense. Uh, then Again, it could be that you look at the agent as being scripture, at what, what is referred to as the word of God. And I, I don't think it's as simple as this. There, you, you could apply scripture in any number of ways, like combinatorically, if you adopt certain things and reject certain things, there's much more than, there's many more possibilities than just two. You follow it or you don't. It's much more complicated, but I'm simplifying. Um, in any case, you could say it is because of scripture, but the question is, is that not just, could that just be a misattribution? 
Could it be that there's a, some other set of inputs? Since it isn't just as simple as a yes or no question, which are the actions that they are ad adopting in their context and why are they working? Is it really the scripture itself or is there, is there other, some, some other causal agent that we just don't understand yet? Something anthropological, something cultural, maybe something biological, if you consider neuroscience. So I, I hope I haven't butchered that. I hope I haven't said anything to misrepresent anyone else's take on that, but that, that's what I'm, that's how I'm thinking this through. Another way you could look at it is group behavior. And this is something very similar that I won't belabor, but you could imagine a group of individuals and the two possible choices are they adopt a religious ideology or they, they disobey it. And it could be that it's to the benefit or detriment of the group. Again, this is very oversimplified, but it's a question of, was it the scripture of the ideology or was it some other mechanism that was activated by the obedience or disobedience? Some other causal effect besides God intervenes. And I think getting back to the, to the initial opening in terms of the United States and its improbability, I think the question there would be, okay, you have a, a, a group of human beings, civilization can function um, in a stable fashion because it's been set up and let's say you have a bunch of human beings acting in concert and let's say the United States is founded in either one of these cases. And the, the action or event is that the civiliza civilization adopts that scripture or does not. And the outcome in this case would be they adopt the scripture, the religious practices, they believe in God and the Trinity, etc. And so you have a stable civilization. In the case of disobedience, let's disregard scripture. You have something that is unstable and ultimately disintegrates into something else. It doesn't, it decoheres and ends up not being a stable society. Maybe it splits. Maybe it's incapable of defending itself against invasion by outside, uh, outside countries. Maybe it's vulnerable to overthrow from internal actors. Um, something you, you could come up with any number of ideas. And again, the question would be the same. Is it, is it the scripture itself? The fact that it came from God, is that the causal factor or is it something else? Is it the way the, the scripture affects human behavior? So there's kind of this big question mark here. You might observe an input 
corresponds to an output. And you could say scripture has something to do with that because it is at least one of the inputs. And if it seems to be beneficial, then you could say this must mean that God had something to do with it. Now, I think, I think the question about whether or not God is causing scripture, like whether or not he is the one who created it, or whether it's just some mechanism operating from scripture, that's where you, I think you have the, the division. I would say people who are religious would, of course, say scripture comes from God. Therefore, uh, God is responsible for the outcome. People who are non-believers, I think, would just look at the scripture and say, this is what we have. We don't understand it, but there's something in here. There's some missing variable, and that may be causing the outcome that we're seeing. And so this is the question I have been wondering about, is especially with regards to my own life, I actually lived as something of a passive Christian for many years, 33, 34. I eventually decided to try and put it into practice in my own life in a more serious fashion. Uh, I mentioned in a prior podcast that there, there's a verse in the Gospel of John, it's John 7, 17, and like the context for this is uh, Jesus is preaching in a synagogue and people are listening to him. There's an audience, his disciples and some of his other followers and just some other people in Judea, I believe. And after he's done speaking, they all kind of go outside and mill around and they're, they're murmuring among themselves. This is a hard teaching. Do you believe this? Does this sound right to you? And so Jesus comes out uh, from the synagogue and he, he knows that this sentiment is being passed around. He senses this in the air. And so one of the things he says to them is, anyone who does the will of God will know whether what I'm saying comes from God or whether I am speaking on my own behalf. Which sounds very much to me like an invitation to put it into practice. Now, of course, he doesn't he doesn't go on to say that if it doesn't work for you, you can therefore reject it. I think he's just saying, you're all going, you're all guaranteed success. I'm so confident of what I'm saying that you'll come to believe that this is divine revelation. However, that was the way I took it. So when I made an effort to be a serious Christian, I was taking the advice and putting it into practice in my own life, even if I was not capable of believing fully that it was divine revelation. This is essentially my way of trying to be a good Christian, but the rebel in me kind of being difficult. I, I basically worked my own sort of disobedience into how I was choosing to practice it. Just because that that's my nature. I'm If I'm not nonconformist, I'm often anti-conformist. But at some point I came to believe that, I came to understand because of the arguments put forth by the new atheists that this really could not be literal truth. So it really ought to be rejected. 
And this was a very difficult time for me. Like I felt like I had lost something, like a tie to some very important spiritual side in me. And so this always stuck in my head. Like I, I get the argument that a lack of rationality is dangerous. If you're going to have faith in something, you're going to claim something is true without evidence. That's a very dangerous precedent to set for yourself. If you accept that, then you can pretty much smuggle in anything. I think I heard Penn Jillette say, and this is ultimately what persuaded me completely, that if you can rationalize, like I've thought through in my head, I've worked out the logic in my brain and I've had experiences subjectively and because of those feelings, I believe there's a God. I can't prove it to you, but I just feel it. And because I feel it, I know it to be true. The question is, if you accept that, what is to stop Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda, from strapping suicide bombs themselves and attacking Western civilization because they feel that Muhammad or Allah is telling them to do so? How could you not rationalize if you're Charles Manson um, basically killing celebrities and telling your followers to do so because you think there's a message hidden in the music of the Beatles telling you to do so? You have to have some objective standard outside of yourself uh, that lets you evaluate whether something is true or not. Otherwise, you end up with the, the, the real danger, at the very least, the potential for fanaticism and very irrational behavior. But I think the question is, to what extent is it, to what extent is all of this irrational, blind belief in something that can be demonstrated not to be true, to what extent does it result in social cohesion for reasons that we don't fully understand? And maybe on the strength of that, it would be a bad idea to simply throw the whole thing out without understanding what those other factors might be. And this is the question I, I face. I, when, I, when I talk to people, it's very difficult to articulate this possession, position because it sounds like you're punting on the question or it sounds like you might be adopting one side or the other you tell an atheist this, it sounds like you're defending scripture as being some kind of truth, which it is. And I think they take exception to that. If you tell this to a religious person, then, then clearly you're missing the point because you're not taking divine revelation as divinely revealed truth. You're, you're questioning it in the spirit of disobedience. So I, I don't have an answer here. But this is very much the question for me. And there's one last point I want to make, which I think is, this, this is separate, but very much related. And I think if I'm going to step in between two people who are arguing, this is the question I would ask. So if we I'll start here. Actually, 
I mentioned the evolutionary biologist Brett Weinstein. He's the one who came up with the the analogy of filth in the Israelite camp. Uh, his brother, uh, Eric Weinstein, uh, somebody asked him, somebody mentioned to him that in the Quran, there is a verse that says apostates must be killed. It seems that this is this is a rule that some people in the Muslim world are, are more than happy to enforce. Now, Eric Weinstein was, was correct to point out that this rule also exists in the Torah. There is a verse in, I, I couldn't tell you where it is, I've forgotten. It essentially says, if you are Jewish and there is one of your fellow Hebrews comes to you, somebody who you've been worshiping with, you both are, are Hebrews, and says, let us go worship other gods, you must surely kill that person. And the way Eric Weinstein put it, and I love this, is he said that is a piece of code that modern-day Jews have figured out how to not execute. It's in the source code. It's in the DNA, but it does not code for behavioral proteins, so to speak. And this is very interesting to me because the concern here is that you do have scripture, and it seems like what we take of it, the pieces of it that we currently put into practice, it's not wholesale. And so the way I see it, if you can make the argument that scripture was an input that led to Western civilization, like if somehow it has been a contributory factor to this wonderful society we now live in and should be thankful for, and is highly improbable, then scripture itself seems to be nothing more than an initial boundary condition in the chaotic system meaning that if civilization were to be destroyed, if things fell apart and you started over with nothing but the Bible, you are not guaranteed to evolve your way into what we now have. It's possible you start with people who do not, people who worship other gods, apostates effectively are killed. And that since it isn't codified any in, anywhere in there that religious tolerance is part of our civilization, you wouldn't necessarily get to that. And the same thing could be said for Christianity. The admonition that go make disciples of all nations. There is really nothing in the New Testament that says be tolerant of other views. The whole notion of religious freedom, the notion of the separation of church and state, those are things that took a very long time for human beings to get to from the inception of Christianity and its dissemination into civilization. And it's really not clear to me that if you were to start over with just those founding documents, namely the, the Tanakh and the, and the New Testament, 
that you would necessarily get back to the terminus of Western civilization as it looks right now, and in particular, a secular democracy like the United States. So while I'm very, very glad that the code doesn't execute, so to speak, there's no guarantee that we, this will be preserved if the, the currently, um, currently running version of the, I guess it would be if the hardware changes, some other, if some other downstream addition to the program changes, I guess you could see the Bible as the bootloader some of the operating system code change. If the operating system is destroyed and we have to create one from scratch, you wouldn't necessarily get the same functional system. I think that's my concern. I feel like the answer here is that what you do want is a mythology that can be shared. I'm reading a book by Joseph Campbell. Uh, it's his last book in the Masks of God series. It's book number four called Creative Mythology. And the first three talk about how mythology has been shared largely among all humans, or at least among groups of humans. People have been congealed around these various myths that they concoct. Now, we really live in an age where that's not that's not our way of thinking. The way we think is, we think as individuals. We're very existential in that we sort of say, well, let's go create our own meaning. We're going to write our own mythology with how we live our lives. You don't start with the values that drive action. You, you take the actions to establish the values. Something like that. Which again is okay, but what you're, there's not necessarily anything wrong with that, but again, that is not codified anywhere. I guess if you consider people, people that are programs on the operating system that's running, or I guess the operating system is civilization, you could have the Bible as the bootloader. You wouldn't necessarily get the same operating system. And if you got a different operating system, you wouldn't necessarily get any of the same programs. So there's nothing that's preserved here. You're not writing the source code of the operating system or any of the people running on it back into the bootloader so it's preserved from a restart of the system or a complete overhaul of the system. I guess if you install a new version of Linux, so to speak. And so what we have does work, but what you want to do is create a new bootloader. You want a new, you want a new mythology that codifies where we have ended up, basically keeps all of the correct things all of the things that have stabilized society the way it currently is. And none of the stuff that we would consider immoral. Any of the rules of the Old Testament that cause the 
new atheists to open it up and scoff at it and throw it away and say, well, that's just morally repugnant. It probably is more morally repugnant by our standards, and we should probably figure out how to make sure that it is not part of the bootloader if we have to start this up again. Now, I don't know how you do that. It, it's certainly not as simple as you sit down and write a bunch of new myths, and those are just going to take off. I, 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 from my understanding of the history of Christianity, it did not seem to me that Jesus sat down and wanted to change the world the way that he did. I think he initialized something. He himself was basically the initial boundary conditions for what scripture ended up being. And what it evolved into was very much driven by the people that came after him and tried to persist his message. You, you have branching off of Judaism, this kind of clade diagram of various bits of Christianity, like they branch off of each other. Most of those branches go extinct. I think you still have Gnostics around, but there's old versions of Christianity, Marcionites, Sabellianism. Most of these things don't survive. There is a kind of Darwinian force at effect here. And essentially the thought theology you end up with um, is probably driven by how well does it serve the organisms that are carrying it. If you're a Marcionite in the second century, you, you don't, you no longer exist. You were ill-adapted for whatever circumstance you were in. So I, I spend way too much time thinking about this, especially in proportion to how easy or feasible it would be for any one person to solve this problem. But people are talking about it. I'm certainly not the first person to float any of these questions. I'm, I'm sure I'm not the first person to, to phrase them this way or to float any of these possible solutions. But I'm kind of at an impasse. I, I don't know exactly where you could go from here. I don't know what the next step to take would be. And I'm actually paying close attention to people who are looking at this problem because I want to know people who are smarter than me who've been thinking about this for longer may have a path forward. And I'm paying careful attention to what it is they may have to say. And anyone listening, uh, thank you for paying attention. I, I do say this during the um, coronavirus pandemic. I am sheltering in place. Uh, so I am recording a lot of these things just to pass the time. Uh, the two individuals I mentioned uh, are incredibly smart. Uh, they have their own podcasts. If you if you are 
sheltering in place right now and you're looking for some fascinating thoughts, uh, Brett Weinstein has a podcast called, it's the Dark Horse Podcast. I hope I got that name right. And Eric Weinstein uh, has a, a podcast called The Portal. If you're listening to this, I'm reasonably sure you've heard of both of those. But if you, if you have not, go check that out. There are some fascinating ideas coming from both of those. I'm definitely indebted to them for having shaped my thinking about a lot of these issues. Uh, having prompted my thinking to go in completely new directions. So wherever you are in the midst of this pandemic, if you are, I hope it has passed us by the time anyone is listening to this, but wherever you are, I hope you are healthy. I hope you and yours are all well. You're staying sane in your isolation. And I, I wish you the best. This is this is Jim signing off. Cheers. <laughs>